0: This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network.
1: We fear that someone's going to tell us that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, or tell us we're not good enough, or something that we've created is not great. We're all just reacting to that and trying to stay away from that feeling. But I think when you really dig into that feeling and understand that nothing actually happens, even if things don't go well and you do get rejected, it's okay. You're going to live. And once you get past that, that's how that confidence really starts to build.
0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. I'm your co-host, Jamie Vinnick, founder and president of the Women's Network, And I'm so excited for you to meet our next guest, Lydia Finette. Lydia is the global managing director and lead charity auctioneer at Christie's, a top auction house in our business. To put it into context, a 15 carat diamond ring sold for $29 million recently at Christie's to become the new auction record for any purple pink diamond. Lydia started at Christie's as an intern and 22 years later still works there, a rarity to stay for that length of time at one company in today's age. Lydia is also the author of The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, Command an Audience and Sell Your Way to Success, and is an outspoken advocate of building confidence. Enjoy the episode and make sure to connect with us on Instagram at Redefining Ambition and at thewomens.network.
2: Lydia, it is so exciting and such an honor to have you on the podcast. Welcome to Redefining Ambition.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this opportunity to speak with you.
2: I'm so excited. Lydia is someone who I I am deeply inspired by, and I'm excited for you to share more about your story. We're going to get into your career, and you're unique in that you have stayed at the same company throughout your entire career, which is... (laughs) very rare at this point. But before we get into that, you have a really unique upbringing. You grew up in a small town in Louisiana. Your mom is British. You grew up with, you're one of four siblings. I believe your dad or your grandfather was a banker in Africa.
1: Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh, you've done so much research. Yeah. I have a really, a really interesting background. My, my mother is from England and she met my father because my father went abroad when he was from Louisiana, again, a small town, but just a lifelong adventurer and decided that he wanted to study in France. And so he went to France and he arrived there and somebody he knew in Louisiana had met someone at a summer camp who was British and knew my mom. And so he sent her an (laughs) airmail. So that was a long time ago. He sent her an airmail and she invited him to come to England to stay just, I think this was something that people just did. It was a different time. And she invited him because he had a friend and they had a friend in common. So he went to stay and that was kind of it. I mean, she moved to Louisiana when she was 21, I think, maybe 22. So that was kind of where it started. And as a result of that, I've had this amazing hybrid life of uh, living in the south and in america and louisiana but also spending a lot of time in england because my mom has three sisters so my entire childhood during the summer we would go visit her sisters and just stay at their houses as a family and so it's been this amazing upbringing that has really been so rich with two very different cultures that are similar but not in any way shape or form the same
2: (laughs) Did you travel a lot as a kid, or were you someone who primarily stayed within
1: the region? I traveled extensively as a child because my mom you mentioned this earlier so my mother grew up between africa and england because her father was a banker who was transferred to africa so she lived all over africa um, and then her sisters they all went to a boarding school in england and so she would get on flights when she was tiny and fly to boarding school at the ages of 8 9 10 which you know in england is something that people do it seems crazy when you think about it because i have an 8-year-old i can't imagine putting her on an airplane to go to england right now by herself but it was kind of what everyone did so they didn't really think anything of it and you know it's amazing because that has really passed through to all of us i mean my younger sister has a female travel company that she started 2 years ago called she gone because she loves to travel so much and it's honestly the greatest gift you can give anyone and especially your children, the ability to see something outside of the four walls that they live in and also the country that they live in, because it opens your eyes to just such incredible things that you don't experience in the place where you're comfortable. And it pushes you outside of that comfort zone, which is what I love about it.
2: Wow. So you go off to the University of the South, Swanee mm-hmm. is what it's called, yeah. studied art history and history. Mm -hmm. Did you always know you had an interest in the arts or how did your interest evolve?
1: I had absolutely no interest in the arts. I'd say in my book that there was, you know, the only, the only thing I knew about the art world was about museums. And that was because my parents used to take us to museums whenever we were traveling to see the art and my sister and my brothers, and I would always say this is great. Can we go outside and get ice cream? (laughs) There was very little interest in what we were seeing. And I think at that time, museums didn't do such a great job of really explaining the art. It was just sort of like you go and look at a picture. And the interesting thing about art is Yes, if you love it, that's great, and you have a visceral reaction, but understanding where it comes from and why that picture or that painting arrived at that time in life because of what was going on in the world or what was going on in the economy, like that is what, to me, is very interesting about art. But I read an article when I was in college in Vanity Fair about this place called Christie's Auction House. I had never heard of this place. I had no idea there was an auction world. This was not something that anyone in my family really talked about or knew about. And certainly not in Lake Charles, Louisiana. That was not something we talked about or knew about. And so I read this article about Christie's and it was about the this amazing auction for charity of Princess Diana's dresses. You know, and as I said, my mom is British. So I, I woke up for the royal wedding when I was a child. My mom got us all out of bed to watch Princess Diana and Prince Charles get married. I mean, if you were British... The monarch is kind of your thing, and that was really a huge part of our childhood. So I read this article about this black tie event in New York City, and it was all about this glamorous world, this glamorous auction world. And I just thought to myself, this this is the place where I have to work. This is tailor made for me. I have not a single contact. I have no idea how I will ever find anyone who works there. But in my mind, in college, junior, I read that article, and that for me was the beginning of Christie's. Really.
2: You have this crazy story about how you landed an internship, which got your foot in the door. You mentioned you didn't know anyone at this prestigious, almost high society company. Tell our listeners how you got your foot in the door.
1: Absolutely. So essentially as I said, I told every single person that I'd met after that point that I was going to work for Christie's, to which most people said, what is Christie's? And I just kept telling everyone. And finally, you know, a, I think it was like a solid year later, we were at a cocktail party for Christmas, just a family friends party. And somebody mentioned to my father, who also loves to talk to people, that there was a young woman who was starting at a place in New York called Christie's. And I think my father's a little bit like me. He talks about everything that he wants very openly with people because that's really the key to networking in life, telling other people. Because if someone hears it, they might forward you an article that gets you a little bit further along that path. And so he pulled this woman over who had literally started at Christie's, I mean, not even a couple of weeks before, but she knew the number for the internship coordinator. And so she gave me that number. And that for me was the opportunity that I was not going to pass up, And so I basically started calling this woman, Mary Libby, who was kind of an institution. She was still at Chrissy's until about two years ago, but I spoke, I called her the first time and I said, hi, Mrs. Libby. My name is Lydia Finette. I'm calling from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your internship program, because I would really like to apply. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. The internship program has been closed for months. You know, And this is something I know now because I work for a company, but I certainly did not know in Louisiana that if you were in New York City... And you were in college, you were gunning for an internship from day one. You know, that is part of the world that I live in now. It is where my children are growing up. I'm aware of it now. I was not aware of it then. So I had no idea that, you know, by mid-spring, all internships would be completely locked and loaded. And I said to her, well, you know, this is my dream. I mean, I couldn't even even finish my sentences because, of course, she cut off my dream immediately. So we hung up. But that was a long time ago. And a long time ago, there was no caller ID. So I just called her back every single day. Every <laughs> single day, I called Mary Libby. Hi, Mrs. Libby. It's Lydia Finette. And now, I know you mentioned that the internship program was full, but I was just wondering if maybe there was a wait list. I mean, every day there was a different angle. And finally, it got to the point, I and mean, I think we're day 13 at this point, point. and I think she was getting a little annoyed, if I'm really honest. And when she picked up, I said, no, it's Lydia. I just, please don't hang up. I just want to ask you one quick thing. How many interns are in the program? And she said, 30. And I said, but why are there 30 people? And she said, well, because the museums can only take two groups of 15. And every afternoon, the interns go to museums around New York City. That's part of the internship program. And to me, that presented the opportunity, which was, if all the interns are going, then someone needs to stay behind. You What if there's a big project that someone has to work on? And so I presented it like that. little differently. Same question, asked differently. And it was the first time she didn't say no. So she kind of paused and, okay, let me call you back. And she called me back an hour later and said I could do a modified internship, which meant that I could go in, I would not go to any of the museums unless, you know, someone didn't show up. But I'm speaking to people who are in college or recently graduated from college. So I'm sure we can all agree that there are days where you've had a little bit too much fun at night and you don't quite make it to the internship the next morning because of name, name the issue, but it probably has something to do with an alcoholic beverage or something like that, that you've had too many of, or something along those lines, or maybe you were sick, who knows. But the bottom line was I took advantage of that and I started going to the museums. And that for me was the beginning. And that was my first internship at 20 At 21, I went back, and I started there full-time, and I've never left.
2: That is an incredible story. And in an industry like this, networking is really important. Often those who do land these internships have previous connections or know someone who knows someone who can help get their foot in the door. There are so many takeaways and really lessons to be learned from this particular anecdote you shared. To you, what is the takeaway?
1: Well, I think there are a couple takeaways. I think it's very important when you are figuring out what you want to do with your life that you include as many people as possible. You do not have to pursue your dreams by yourself. And in fact, it's a lot more fun when there are other people rooting for you. So if you have something in mind that you want, tell other people about it and see if they can pull that person across at a party and say, oh, you know, this person loves tech too. This person loves swimming, whatever it is. There might be some connectivity. And that's ultimately what networking is about. People think that networking is something that you, know, you stick a business card on your shirt and you go to a networking event. Networking is every person you've met over the course of your entire life. And as you get older in your career or as you get older without a career, all of those people, if you're smart and you keep them in your network, grow because they get networks of their own. And so all of a sudden, you know, a network of three, if you move to a new city, when everyone is meeting new people... All of a sudden your network grows and grows and grows. So make sure whenever you start, wherever you start, to remember that networking is the most important thing you're going to do and it's free. You grow your business. I think it enhances your life to meet new people. So those are sort of, that's what I would say about networking. But I also would say, you know, write your own story. I think so many people would take that that answer of no the first time and say, oh, there goes my dream of Christie's. Maybe I'll apply next year. But why, why not, be the, but why not be the heroine in your own story or the hero in your own story? You can write a different story than a no gives you nine times out of 10, if you look at it in different ways. So don't always take no at face value. Think about different ways that could be helpful to someone else. And sometimes that'll open the door.
2: Lydia, that is incredible advice. <laughs> you are really outspoken about being your most authentic self about immediately distinguishing yourself, and that definitely ties into networking. How would you propose or suggest that people go about immediately distinguishing themselves? How have you gone about that?
1: Well, I walked into an industry that, I mean, Christie's, for those of you who don't know, is an auction house that was based in London. It been around for 200 years ago. The auctioneers who are essentially, you know, you stand at a podium with a gavel, and you basically sell art or whatever it is that they put in front of you to sell. This is not cattle auctioneering, I should tell you. We don't speak super quickly. We speak quickly, but not in a, in a sort of rapid cadence. But every single person that I saw at the podium when I arrived was a guy. And they were all much older than me. They were mainly British because it's a British company. And a lot of the people there had trained as junior auctioneers when they were young and had been at the company for a long time. And they were fantastic auctioneers. But There were no women. It wasn't really something that anyone did. And so, you know, I trained to be an auctioneer when I was 24. I tried out to be a charity auctioneer, which is different than an art auctioneer. You're sort of sent out to those galas that I was talking about with Princess Diana, where you're selling things to benefit the charity. So you're not just selling art for someone's collection, you're selling something to help someone else. And you go out all over New York City at these black tie galas and you get on stage. And I did what I'd seen gentlemen who were much older than me do. You know, I saw them get up there. They were selling like they were selling art at those charity auctions. And if you really think about being someone who's totally different in a situation, I think so often we go inward thinking, oh God, everyone's going to judge me. Everyone's going to think X about me. When in fact, it's really what differentiates you that allows you to do something different. And so I'd taken probably 500 auctions, meaning I have gotten on stage as the auctioneer late at night 500 times over, you know, five to six years and every time i did it i just didn't feel like myself i felt very uncomfortable because i was acting like somebody that i wasn't At the time i was you know a late 20 year old woman and i was acting like a 6 year old british man because that's what that's the only thing i'd seen and in the book i talk about this formative moment where i wasn't feeling very well i'd been sick all day And I arrived at the stage and instead of being the person who was going to pretend that I was this sort of like older gentleman, I really kind of morphed into myself, which I have a very dry sense of humor. I'm super chatty. I like to have a lot of fun. And I got on the stage and I just started talking to the audience the way that I would talk to my friends. You know, I was making jokes about the lots and it was almost like I felt so awful that I couldn't even pretend to be anyone else. And it was the first time I got this reaction from the crowd. And I realized that art auctioneering could be done differently than charity auctioneering. It didn't have to be the same. And what I needed to do was be entertainment for people who were sitting there not wanting an auction in the middle of their dinner party. So why not make it fun? And that that's what I mean by your authentic voice. You know, standing up there as a 20-year-old woman, I started talking about things that a 20-year-old woman should be talking about. I didn't try to affect this sort of stiff upper British accent class. Like, I just fell into my normal. And it continued through my 30s. You know, I had, I was pregnant three times in my 30s. And I would get on stage hugely pregnant. And I mean, what am I going to do? Everyone can tell I'm pregnant. So I would make a joke about it. So that was really that that allowed me to be my authentic self. And it's really fun when you find your voice and you find the confidence to use that voice. So that's what I mean by authentic self
2: love that. So before we move on, in referencing being your most authentic self, bringing that to the office, you shredded papers by an elevator and it ended up being this really unique way to network with people at the company. Can you talk a little bit more about how you took this very mundane task and turned it into something that elevated your purpose your presence at the firm in the company doing kind of a mindless task as a 20 year old
1: yeah absolutely and i'll say this because especially people who are listening right now i know that a lot of people push back when they get to jobs and they're asked to do menial tasks which i fully understand I've always looked at it both as somebody who grew up in a company starting as an intern and then, you know, an assistant for many years and, and now being a boss who has tons of interns who come in and out. What I will say will get you further in life than anything is a can-do attitude and a smile. You know, it's great to have the person who's a whiz on X, Y, and Z, but if that's all done without any smile or humor or can-do attitude and it just seems like it's a pain in someone's day, people notice. And I think for me, you know, I was 20 years old. I just told you how hard it was for me to get an internship at Christie's. And I walked in the first day and I thought that my role was going to be being Princess Diana's best friend, because obviously I'd read this article in Vanity Fair. So this was like the next iteration of my my job at Christie's was to be her handler. And uh, even though she had nothing to do with the company, it was just a charity auction. And I arrived in my Park Avenue, because Christie's at that time was on Park Avenue, office. And I basically had a desk, you know, facing a wall, which, you know, that's what happens when you're 20. And I had a huge stack of papers to shred into shredder by the elevator. And I would shred for days, I had nothing else to do. Could you just shred these papers? Okay, uh, don't get staplers near a shredder, by the way, just pro tip, just those will jam it for days. And I would have people would come up to me and say, "Ooh, it's the shredder. And I would laugh and smile and make conversation with them. And it was really funny, because I got to know a lot of the really senior people at the company, because you know what, every single person uses an elevator. And so it just became this really interesting part of my career at Christie's. And it, it expanded into when I was in the events department, because that was my first role at Christie's and I was the, the events assistant, which is a full-time, full day, seven day a week, you know, almost 12 hours a week, 12 hours a day job, really a very thankless job. You're checking people in, you're checking on people as they're seated. But I always did it with a smile and I was always there. And if I saw someone sort of glancing around as if they didn't know, instead of standing sort of in the corner, like most of the other people I was interning with at that point, I would run up and ask them if they needed anything. I would proactively ask if people needed help and people noticed that. And so every year, you know, when people would go up for promotion, my name would go up there and I would get a promotion. And I've always had that. And I remember being the head of events when I was in my late twenties and I was walking through a gallery right before an event and there was a crumpled up napkin on the floor and I was walking with my team and I bent down and picked it up. And one of the interns said, I can't believe you just picked that up. And I said, well, the event's starting in a minute. Like who else picks it up? I noticed it. This is my party. Got to make it perfect. Right. doesn't matter if I'm the head of events. I can check in if we like, you can never be above a job because you can always learn from whatever you're doing. So I do think that that's something that I have always found with people who work on my teams, the interns that I remember the most are the ones who are, they're really in it. You know, they're in it if you're like, hey, could you grab this? Can you do that? Can, like the person who does it and runs around with a big smile on their face and is helping you out and is anticipating what you need, that's the person who you r- recommend more than anyone else.
2: That's a great point. I completely agree. And you're also very detail-oriented. You're very extroverted. What advice would you offer to those who, wouldn't necessarily consider themselves to be the most outgoing or extroverted person in the room?
1: Well, first of all, I actually am not as detail oriented as I wish that I were, but I surround myself with people who are because I understand that that's not my greatest strength. Like, I would much prefer being out in a pitch in front of a room of, you know, a thousand people rather than behind a desk putting things together. But I know that about myself. And so I always make sure that when I'm building teams, that I have someone who's strong in that. And that's a huge part of growing in a career or growing in your life too, is recognizing as you get older, what you're good at and what you're not and compensating for that however you can. It sort of ensures success for everyone around you and you as a leader. I always say, you know, with extroverts and introverts, obviously I'm an extrovert, um, but I think in many cases, introverts actually have the upper hand because if you're an extrovert, you use words to fill time right so if i can't get to a point then you will hear me talking until i always say it's like a it's like a wheel waiting to kick in you know you're in fifth gear in the car and it's like and then you hit the, the gear shift and it goes um, that's my mind but i use words to fill that time if you're an introvert you're not doing that you know because you're really thinking through what you're going to say so i say to introverts First and foremost, make sure if you have the opportunity to speak, you learn how to do it. So if it makes you feel uncomfortable in a class, if it makes you feel uncomfortable in a new job to say something, make sure you do it every single time you're in a meeting or you're in a class. Because what you want to do is get used to getting the words out. So that would be my first piece of advice. But also remember that people listen to introverts because they don't talk a lot. So it's its own strength and its own skill. And I think used wisely, in many cases, it can be more effective if you are an introvert. So don't count yourself out just because you're not interested in meeting everyone in the world. It's great to be an introvert, just like it's great to be an extrovert. But I think you handle things differently.
2: So you graduate, you start (laughs) your career at Christie's. And what did you do for the first couple of years before ultimately now serving in your current capacity? Talk through the roles that you served in.
1: So I started in the events department and essentially everyone above me left by the time I was 26. And so I just kept getting promoted, as I said. And then finally, when I was 26, the director of events left to take a job at a financial institution. And I loved my teams. I loved being you know, the person who was sort of growing. And what I learned very quickly at that time was that if someone's really good at their job, you often have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> and I learned that when my boss left, because I was always sort of like, well, I guess she doesn't really do much. And then she left and I was like, Oh gosh, there's actually a lot that I had no idea about. So, lesson number one get a good poker face. It is the most important part. I learned it in events, I carry it through every day. I've said this many times to people if things are going wrong, people are watching your face. And if you are freaking out, then everyone will know that things are going wrong. I use this on stage all of the time as an auctioneer, people are running up to me, you know, in the middle of an auction, I'm in the middle of a lot and someone comes running up to stage one of the event organizing, that person was drunk and they didn't like, and I I literally will bend down with a smile on my face and nod and listen to them. Because (laughs) I am freaking out as the auctioneer, the crowd is like, what is happening? Whereas if I stand up and I say, well, we've had a little bit of an issue, but whatever. This is a charity auction. So things happen all the time. It's fine. Let's just gloss over it. We're going to go to the next lot and then we'll open that one back up on the next. Anything can be fixed. No one knows what it's supposed to look like. So if you're the person in charge, keep yourself completely, smile on your face, confident sense of self. Everything can be falling apart around you. Don't let anyone see that. And so that's kind of the biggest lesson I learned when I was running the events department. And I did that for basically until my thirties, my, when I was about 30 years old. And that's when I launched my department that I run now, which is called strategic partnerships.
2: So you have given other, mentioned this in other interviews where you're always saying like, try to corner yourself where the revenue is a part of the department where you're not yes. a part of the support department, which is often the first that gets asked what in your your working experience and really in your mind compelled you to start that department? Where did that idea come from? And what are some of the responsibilities associated with the position?
1: Well, as I said, when I was in my job before, I was running the events department. And this was in 2007 when the markets crashed, which similar to what just happened with a lot of you that I know that graduated this year was pretty seismic, especially in New York City. You know, I was at an auction the night that Lehman Brothers closed or, or basically was shut down. And half of the uh, half of the people at dinner just didn't show up. And as an auctioneer, that's kind of scary. It's even more scary for the people who didn't show up or the people who had the money. So I ended up really having to scramble and figure out exactly what we were going to do because obviously we weren't going to do any events. And so for me, it really became this... Interesting moment where I realized that what we had been doing up until that point wasn't going to work anymore. So we really had to come up with a completely different business model. And again, I said I was in a support department. And as a result of that, I immediately was told, you know, you're going to have to cut staff and this this is what's going to happen. Again, I think we can draw a lot of parallels to a decade ago as to what's going on right now. And as a result of that, um, we ended up in this moment where I had to really reinvent what events looked like. And at the time, events looked like we're taking money. But it was also around a decade ago that partnerships and sponsorships, which now are everywhere, were just starting to evolve and just coming out there. And everyone at Christie's felt very uncomfortable with the idea of having a partnership or a sponsorship of any sort because, you know, we were supposed to be this Christie's auction house. But at the same time, like everyone else, all of our budgets had been cut and there was no money to do anything, but we still wanted to entertain our clients. And so I said to my team, you know, if we really think about an event, it's almost like a quadrant. What do we need to get here in order to have this event? And what could we ask someone to bring in in exchange for exposure to our clients? And that was everything from invitations, you know, at that point, paper invitations were still around. People's post wasn't around yet. So we went to new letterpress companies that had just started and said, listen, in exchange for allowing our clients to receive an invitation from you and all of these things, we would be thrilled to have you do the invitation. We would do it. New restaurants that had opened that had no business because people didn't know about them. They didn't have any marketing dollars could come bring you know, some food, some wine, get in front of our clients. And all of these things I realized were just things that could be sponsored or partnered. And that's kind of how it started. And then as we sort of crossed through 2008 and 2009, I realized that we were actually starting to make money. So not only were we offsetting all of our costs for the events, but we were making money. And then all of a sudden, this business model in my mind was like, here we go. We were a support department. We can now make revenue. And what does this look like for the next decade?
2: You have raised over $500 million for charitable causes.
1: What is your auction voice? I would say, if I had my gavel, I would knock it down and say, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lydia Fanat. I'm here from Christie's Auction House to conduct a short auction. Well, it'll be short if you bid. Otherwise, we're going to be here all night. So I suggest you grab those paddles and let's get started or something like that. That's my auction voice. <laughs>
2: So for those who are unaware, what is the difference between auctioning for charitable causes and auctioning art? And I know that you had mentioned it previously, but more specifically, does the tone
1: shift? Is the vibe different? Totally different. So art auctioneering, essentially, if you imagine you're going into a building knowing that you're going to bid on something. And in many cases, because we're Christie's and we're one of the top auction houses in the world, the things that you're going to bid on Are very expensive, especially for the big sales. So you could be spending millions and millions of dollars on a piece of art, but even at the smallest level, you're definitely spending thousands of dollars on art. So people go in knowing what they're going to spend and what their limit is, and our hope is they get a little caught up in it, and then all of a sudden they spend more. And you know, you're walking into a sale room where there it's almost like a boardroom where chairs are facing a, a podium or a classroom. Right? There's one auctioneer, and they're doing the auction, and everyone's watching, and it's very. Quiet and poised, and no one raises their hand unless they want to bid, and all of these things. However, in a charity auction, it's a party, right? And the charity is just the charity auction is an afterthought. Anywhere in New York City, any event space in New York City, it can be 200 people. I mean, I've been on stage at Madison Square Garden with Bruce Springsteen with 6,000 people. I mean, a stage is a stage is a stage. The only thing that changes is what I'm raising money for and the number of people. And so I'll walk into a room of people who start with a cocktail hour, a lengthy cocktail hour to make sure that they've had a couple glasses of wine and then they sit around round tables and like this beautiful dinner. And after the dinner, at some point, sort of in the middle of the dinner, I get up and try to sell them things that they probably don't want, but I do it in a very charming way. and <laughs> Hopefully they end up giving me more than they thought they were gonna give me. So yes, you know, when you're selling art, you're not gonna get on stage and try to convince someone to buy something. When you're selling charity auctions, lots, you are definitely trying to convince someone to buy. You definitely need this trip to Mexico. It is going to snow all winter in New York City. You know, you're painting this story in this picture, and it's very important.
2: You have a lot of confidence. Anyone listening to this podcast can hear it through your voice. I can feel it through the Zoom screen that you carry yourself with so much confidence, and it's it's like palpable. It's it's very infectious. How, in reflecting on your career and some of the even early experiences, were you able to build confidence and exercise that muscle of confidence? I mean, being on stage with someone like Bruce Springsteen is pretty intimidating to the average person and certainly exhilarating. So on top of that, what was that experience like with Bruce?
1: Well, I think building confidence really starts from within. You know, In many times, whenever I'm feeling like I don't have confidence, I really try to think of myself as almost having like a Teflon shield. I had a woman at a book conference or a book event when my book came out say that she raised her hand after I finished speaking and she said, I don't have a question. I just have a comment. I worked at a call center and I was rejected over 10,000 times. So I like to say that I have a Teflon shield around me. And I remember thinking I need to borrow that because that is the best way to explain what a truly confident person looks like that nothing gets in there. You have your vision for what you want and what you think is going to happen. And everything else is sort of stays with you and your thoughts. And so what other people think about you or their perception of you doesn't touch that. And that's what confidence is. Confidence is really just living the life you want to live and not in any way, shape, or form trying to harm anyone around you, but just thinking to yourself, like, it's okay if you think that what I'm doing is not okay because this is how I feel like I should be doing it, then this feels right to me. And I think getting over rejection is a huge part of that because that's really what we all fear, right? We fear that someone's going to tell us that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing or tell us we're not good enough or something that we've created is not great. We're all just reacting to that and trying to stay away from that feeling. But I think when you really dig into that feeling and understand that nothing actually happens, even if things don't go well and you do get rejected, it's okay. You're going to live. And once you get past that, that's how that confidence really starts to build. So for me, it was rejection on stage. I mean, what is it like to stand in front of people who talk for two hours while you're trying to take an auction? It doesn't feel great, but I kept doing it. You know, I kept getting up on that stage time after time. I mean, there were times I wanted to slink out of there on my hands and knees because it had gone so badly. Like I would get off stage and people would be like, that was a tough crowd. Yeah, I know. I've been up there. I've seen. No one raised their hand and they talked the whole time. Yes, that was a tough crowd. And now it doesn't bother me, but it really bothered me when I first started. But again, you get over it. You just have to keep pushing yourself through it and pushing yourself to do it. Um, But in terms of Bruce Springsteen, it was amazing. It was really fun. Yeah, it was so fun. And I've done it actually, I think five times now. I've gone and taken that auction with him. And he's a normal guy, just like I'm a normal person like you're a normal person. He just happens to have a skill that makes him extraordinary. And so backstage, he's as nice as anyone else. And the crazy thing about the more time you spend with people who have power, whether it be politicians or celebrities or CEOs or whatever it is, what you realize is that if you come at them in a way that a fan would come at someone who they thought was incredible, you know, just breathy, oh my God, I, I you know, having a moment I have to they react to that because that is uncomfortable for them in many ways you know and someone who speaks to them on their level because they feel as confident in that room is not intimidating and it doesn't make them feel like anything except just being a normal human being and so i've just learned that that's always the best approach and you know i've had moments where i was hanging out with Hugh Jackman and his wife and they're in his dressing room before an auction with him and just thinking to myself if my mother was here i think she would literally pass out on the floor <laughs> But to me, it felt totally normal. He's a really nice guy. I've taken a lot of auctions with him, you know? So that's been one really fun offshoot of my job that I've loved. And Bruce was just as great as many of the people I've had the opportunity to be on stage with. But it was a really, it was a unique night. What was
2: that experience?
1: Well, we were auctioning off his guitar that he was playing that night, and then he kept throwing in different things. And it was for the Bob Woodruff Foundation, which supports returning warriors who've come back with injuries. And so he started off by... I think I started the bidding, maybe at like ten dollars to start. And it just, I mean, it was a room of 6,000 people and it was just flying. Everyone was a huge Bruce Springsteen fan and we're going and we're going, we're past 200000 And I think we stalled out somewhere around $250,000 for a guitar. You know, and I say to the audience, all right, ladies and gentlemen, $250,000, is there any advance over 250000 And he's standing behind me and the, he's playing the guitar. And he said, I'll throw in a plate of my mom's lasagna. And like, we're off to the races again. And then it's, he throws in a ride on his motorcycle. And then he throws in, he said something about tickets to one of his shows and you can go backstage, but you have to bring your own drugs because his, his band doesn't share. And I, I remember saying to the crowd, and this is exactly how we do things at Christie's. We are, please, if my parents are watching, do not think that, that I'm selling this. I'm not even sure this is legal, actually, now that I think about it. But we ended up selling for $370,000 for the Warriors. And then we doubled it, which means that he said to the crowd, I'll do another one. I have another guitar that I played this evening and I'll, I'll replicate all of that. So, you know, right there, you're making over $700,000 for an incredible cause. And I mean, you can tell when I talk, there's nothing I love more than charity auctioneering. I just think it's so fun. It's fun to play with the crowd. It's amazing to raise money for these organizations and it's a true passion really.
2: So I want to get into your book. You wrote a Mm -hmm. book called the most powerful woman in the room is you. You got it. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot to unpack here and a common theme of the book is surrounding the topic of negotiation. Mm. What compelled you to write the book and what was some of the inspiration behind tackling the topic of negotiation?
1: I wrote the book because... I found that almost every time I was standing either backstage before an auction or after I got off stage, or even when I was seated at dinner before I got up on stage, there was a woman who would tell me in some sort of grouping, I could never do what you do. I I can't sell myself. I'm so bad at selling. It was just this sort of unbelievable stream of how people couldn't do things and how women, you know and it was always women saying it. And I mean, I told you about my background. I come from the South. My mom is British. These are not places where women, when I was growing up, were told to be going after everything they want. In fact, it was really the opposite. And yet, somehow, I learned it. And when I really dug in, I learned it on stage. And if I learned it, anyone can do it. It's a teachable skill. And so that was really where the seeds for the book started. And then once I started writing, it just it it came out very easily. I I kind of knew exactly what I wanted to say. You know, I wrote the book when I was in my late thirties, and. I've lived in New York for a long time, and I've been around a lot of women who are incredibly successful and others who have not been successful. And it's been interesting to watch over the past two decades, especially being in the same company. Um, And I'm also a mom of girls, and I wanted them to understand that there were key things that they needed to know whenever they're old enough to read this book that no matter what generation this is, this book will remain relevant. And negotiation was one of them. You are what you negotiate is something my dad always said to us. And it's true. Nobody will renegotiate for you. So if you negotiate nothing, you'll get nothing. And if you don't ask for more, you'll never get anything else.
2: Wow. I was reading about statistics surrounding the topic and something that's just jarring is that by not negotiating their job at the beginning of their career, women on average are leaving one to one and a half million dollars off the table in lost earnings. Was there a moment in your life that was kind of the breaking point where you realized that you're not negotiating and you're holding yourself back, not just financially, but your worth because you're not being paid what you deserve?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was about 10 years into my career when I launched strategic partnerships. And that was really how it all started because I found out from sort of a series of different events, but really being at brunch with my friends. I was 30. I'd been at Christie's for 10 years and I was at a brunch with a bunch of my friends. And one of my friends mentioned that she was buying a one bedroom apartment. And if you don't live in New York, what I say in the next sentence will horrify you. But I was living in a one bedroom apartment and my friend and I had built a wall or we hired someone to build a wall between the two. So our living room was basically the size of one couch and a TV screen. So very common in New York outside of that. This is not like nobody wants this life. So, um, but I, you know, I remember sitting at that brunch and just thinking how, how could she possibly do that? Like we all have these fun jobs where we eat hors d'oeuvre because we don't get paid enough Like We eat at work because we don't get paid enough really to do anything. And this is kind of like, and then we go out afterwards based off of what we've done in the evening because otherwise our option would be to go home because no one's making any money. And she just thought I had lost my mind. And she had had parents who spoke very frankly to her about money and the importance of money and really understanding every dollar and what she was worth. And my parents did not. My parents are amazing parents, but money was something we never talked about, ever. It was never something that we discussed. And so it never occurred to me that I should really be asking. And when I did ask at work, my boss, who I adored, would just sort of pat me on the head as if I was a little girl and said, You get to work at Christie's. And for me, that was enough, really, if I thought about it, you know. But then I thought about the fact that no guy goes to work because they're lucky enough to work at Christie's. And all of a sudden, that didn't seem right. And so when I started to really peel back the layers, it re- I realized that I was making a third, a third of what I should be making. And as we just talked about, I mean, you think about the lost earnings, that's 10 years into a career. I mean, how much money had I already left on the table at that point? And I was so furious with everyone. I was so furious with myself for never pushing any further than that quick ask when somebody said like, no, nah, don't, don't ask for things. This is a great job. And that was really the catalyst that made me go in. And you know, I talk in the book about walking in and faking a job offer, which I didn't even intend to do. I just was so furious. I didn't know what else to do. And when they came back and said, okay, we'll pay you. Immediately, I was sort of like, oh, okay, well, now's the time to start that department that I've been thinking about. And You know, I put some thought into a business plan for that and I pitched it right on the spot. And all of a sudden, within two days, I had three times my salary, a completely different title, and a new department. I was the employee you never want to have because I had not advocated for myself and my boss had not been advocating for me. And so it took a moment, the straw that broke the camel's back, that I literally had to walk in and say, I'm leaving in order to get what I want. And that should not be the way that we work. This should be a conversation about setting expectations, setting benchmarks, understanding what you're aiming towards and what those compensation structures look like. And I really hope that that's where we're getting to in this world now, because especially given how many women left the workforce during the pandemic, there's going to be a need for women coming in to really advocate for themselves to make sure that they're making up for that money when they come back.
2: What's the best thing to have come out of the book? Is it conversation? Is it stories you've heard of people advocating for themselves and? In- What is the call to action here?
1: It's been amazing. I mean, I get DMs, I get LinkedIn requests. I I get stories about people who are going into a job interview and they're asking for more and they're going out and doing something that they didn't think that they could do just because they read a chapter on a day where they felt inspired. And that's really what I want people to do. I mean, I've said many times, I mean, the most powerful woman in the room is living her best life. And I don't mean that as in like YOLO, live your best life. I mean, she's plotting her life and she is living her life the way that she wants to live it on her own terms, both financially and also socially. And I think that that's what we all want for each other, right? The life that we want to live and we're happy in that life, whatever that looks like for you and to be able to do that as long as you can.
2: You grew up in the south, and you moved to New York. Obviously, the cultures are very different. Listeners can't see this, but you're wearing these beautiful, earrings, <laughs> blue, dangly, um, statement earrings, and um, that was the first thing I complimented you on when I first met you on this call. But you know, aside from fashion, and I mean some of the other wardrobe outfits that you might have selected. What was the adjustment like? And in reflecting on who you've become, how have you changed or reconciled those two identities?
1: If there are two that's identities. That's such a great question. I, I've actually never been asked that question before, which is saying a lot. <laughs> I get asked a lot of questions. So that is a, that's a really good question. So, I mean, I feel like what I love about having grown up in the South is the gentility of being Southern, There's so many lessons I learned from my grandmother and my mother, who isn't Southern, but sort of adopted a Southern sensibility being there for so long. And part of that is dressing up. You know, I'm never not dressed up. (laughs) I do wear big earrings and I wear a lot of color. And and I feel like that's something that I learned being from the South because people really do dress up for occasions, whether that be walking out of the door of your house, which is an occasion, um, or going to church on Sunday, you know, whatever it is. And, And I definitely brought that to New York. And I work in a place where people dress up. So that's always been very important to me, like the presentation and and really coming at every opportunity with your best self. I think that sort of softer side of being from the South too has really helped me in New York where a lot of people go head to head because I don't even bother with that because you catch more bees with honey and every Southern woman knows that. So, you know, when people are going and screaming, you will never find me pulling out anyone's hair. (laughs) You'll never find me screaming at anyone because there's no reason. And in fact, I always look at people who've lost their temper or out of control or just feeling really ugly towards other people. I always look at them and think, like, how sad that you haven't learned that lesson because you would get so much further in life. You know, the most important leadership quality, I would say, that I've seen that's really taken off, especially post pandemic, which I've always believed in, is a leader who gets to the top by stepping on other people to get up there. When they get up there, something goes wrong. They have a target on their back for the minute things are going wrong and everyone's trying to rip them down. But if you're a leader who takes people along on the journey and is unthreatened by other people's success, when you get to the top, they circle the wagons and something goes wrong. And so everything's bad, but not for you because you're surrounded by people who cheer you on. They don't try to rip you down. And that I think is the greatest gift that you can give to yourself as you are embarking on this journey of life.
2: I'm so touched by that piece of advice, and I <laughs> couldn't agree more. We're already seeing that at a young age, and the people who are not threatened by others' success are those who you want to help, you want to support, you want to encourage, and it's good karma coming around.
1: Yeah, and it feels good too. You know, that's it's the same thing as charity auctioneering. I get off stage and. Half the times I cry when I get off stage. I mean, I got choked up when I was even saying that to you. I mean, I just think that emotion is such a huge part of life. And if you aren't helping other people, you actually are losing out on so much good karma and good emotion.
2: Yes. Yes. I completely agree. What are your thoughts on NFTs?
1: <laughs> Non-fungible tokens. Well, I had never heard of them until about two months ago, but now they're all the rage. Um, you know, we sold we sold a piece at Christie's and every single person in the company, with the exception of the guy who was in charge of the sale, was you know trying to trying to see what they could find on Google as the sale was going on. You know, it's a new, it's a new age for the art world and there are these unbelievable seismic shifts in the art world that come. I mean, for me, it's sort of, if I look back over my career, I was starting when contemporary art was really coming on the market and we're two decades in and here's a whole new world. So I think that we're all excited to see where it goes. You know, I think that there are a lot of really great ideas out there about NFTs. I think there are a lot of not so great ideas about the NFTs. Um, And at Christie's, we're just trying to sort through them and figure out which ones are going to be market makers. And that's the fun part of my job right now, because it's totally different than it was two months ago.
2: I want to get into our quick lightning round of questions. I'll ask you a question and let me know what immediately pops up in your head. So what is your favorite type of art to collect?
1: Photography. Um, I just love black and white photography. I love some color photography, but it's typically black and white.
2: What is the best place you've traveled to for
1: work? Brazil. I did a lot of work in Brazil. I think I went maybe five or six times in two years and it was so much fun and such an incredible culture.
2: What is the funniest auction story that comes to mind?
1: Um, I was taking an auction years, years and years and years ago for the hot pink party, which is for Evelyn Lauder. It was an organization started by one of our top clients, um, the Lauder family, the Estee Lauder family. And I was on my way to the auction and my shoe broke. The auction was running late when I arrived and I was sort of hobbling on one toe because they were very high heels. And I got to the dinner and Mrs. Lauder, Evelyn Lauder, she said, Lydia, we're running late. So why don't you sit down in my chair? So I sat down and I look around the table and it was um, Elizabeth Hurley and Martha Stewart and Monica Sellis, who's a tennis player from the 80s. I mean, it was just this sort of glitterati of people. And the woman who was the head of the catering company at the time and knelt beside me to say hi. And I said to her, does anyone on your team have a pair of nine and a half shoes that I could (laughs) borrow? It's auction. <laughs> so I borrowed a pair of low black heels from one of the cater waiters that evening. Uh yeah. Wow. So that was really okay, that, was, awesome. that was a that was a crowning moment.
2: If you could leave our listeners with one lasting piece of advice, what would that
1: be? Don't let anybody else create your life path. Create it yourself. Figure out what it's going to take to get it there. Message it to everyone you know and just go after it. Don't worry about rejection. It doesn't, it doesn't sting for long. Oh,
2: I love that. Well, Lydia, thank you for joining
1: and- My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then.
2: Take care, everyone.